Hello folks, this is Watchstar podcast series where we talk to the top class achievers in tech and take a peek at the secrets to their excellence. I am your host Manoj Rao and today our guest is Laurent Pinchard. Laurent is an active contributor to the Linux kernel who has contributed to many critical projects. He is involved in the design and development of V4L2, DRM, FBDev, UVC. He is also known as the media controller guy in Linux. He has a fascinating story of how he got into programming and he has built a career that proves that playfully toying with things can result in great things. Without further ado, let's welcome Laurent Pinchard. Some bit about your background, Laurent. So if somebody asked you what you did for a living, how do you answer that? Uh, if it's a totally stranger person, I would try to not mention Linux because then they might run away. <laughs> but <laughs> no, other than that, um, I, I first asked them whether they heard about Linux. And 10 years ago, most people would say no. Uh, today, it's getting a bit better. Uh, and so I can get to the next step and explain that I, r- I write kernel drivers. That's usually greeted with a blank stare. <laughs> um, and the explanation I, I usually give them is that the drivers are the pieces of software that translate between applications and the, the hardware. So I tell them that when I do my job correctly, they never notice that I did anything. But when I fail, then they will complain. Yes, that's a, and it sounds like you go to parties that don't involve too many developers. That's a that's an aberration itself. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I try to keep a good balance. Good. So I work I work from home uh, remotely, meaning that I don't meet lots of colleagues uh, daily, um, and I compensate going to Linux related conferences. Uh, and there, definitely, you meet Linux people. Yes. But otherwise, during the, the rest of my life, then I try to compensate by meeting non-technical people. That's great. Well, how long have you been uh, programming in general? I started when I was nine, so that's 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a very long time, actually. Uh, but only started with Linux uh, at 17. Uh, so that was my first exposure to, to the operating system. That's that's awesome, and as I said before, uh, you don't look like somebody who has already spent several several years doing this. But you know, what did you start off programming? You started off at nine. What was yes. So first? back then, my my father bought his first computer. Uh, it was a very big and bulky machine with. Uh, a huge 10 megabyte hard drive. <laughs> yes, uh, I wasn't even running DOS at the time, so there was a CPM machine. Hmm. And he's a lawyer, so definitely not a technical person or not a computer person. But there was no no management software for law firm back then, so he started getting to programming, uh, programming in mostly in, in basic. So um, he started programming by himself. Yes, with a few author. books, exactly. Nice. Exactly. And so I was interested in that, and he decided to teach me a bit of programming. Uh, and, well, I got a few books as well. Back then, it was quite difficult to get uh, to get programming books in French, my native language. And at nine, my English wasn't very fluent. <laughs> um, but a few years later, I got a few books and started doing things by myself. Um, 
And well, soon enough, uh, my father decided that he would stop teaching me because he couldn't understand what I was doing. <laughs> so that was the beginning. Lots of basic programming, trying to do a few games in text mode and things nice. like that. And this is, we're talking about uh, 90s, early 90s, late 80s time frame? Uh, so that's the uh, late 80s. Yes. Late 80s, yeah. Uh, back then, yeah, 10 megabyte was a massive, massive machine. It was, yes. Yeah. And good on him to have, uh, you know, tried out programming, even not being a technically educated person and to start that in the 1980s uh, speaks well. So uh, did that trigger something? Did um, I'm pretty sure there was some implicit influence, but you grew up in Belgium. Yes, right? I did. Right. So what was your household background like, you know, in the sense like, were there any other technical people influencing your uh, growing up years? Not really, no. So, as I mentioned, apart from my father, uh, there wasn't really any uh, technical person, at least in the sense of uh, computer science around. So I started with that uh, when I was about 12. My my parents uh, just sent me to a computer camp during the summer for one or two weeks because you know, summers are long and you have to find a way to, uh, <laughs> <coughs> to, to occupy your kids. Um, really enjoyed that. That was my first exposure to a different uh, programming language. So it was uh, Tubo Pascal at the time. Right. And is Belgium known for having these programming camps for kids or was that? Uh, not, not really. No, it wasn't very popular. Uh, I don't think it's extremely popular, popular today either, mm -hmm. but still there was, there was something available. Um, and I was really glad to start young because at that age, you like experimenting, you touch lots of things. Um, and at the age of 13, I, I bought a book about x86 assembly. Wow. Because I found that Turbo Pascal was a bit too high level for my taste and with things mm -hmm. that I wanted to do and couldn't find a way to do them. Not that it was impossible, but there was very little information available to me. I mean, we're talking about days before I had an internet connection. Mm -hmm. So that's limits quite, uh, quite drastically the, the information you have access to. Uh, right. So I started uh, x86 assembly programming mm -hmm. and program mostly exclusively in that for four years. I see. What was the machine you experimented on? So I started then, my, my first 686 machine was uh, 286. Nice. Uh, and I started assembly in a 386. Nice. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, to have a head start at 13 to have started programming x86 assembly. Uh, I remember the first exposure for me was way later. Uh, I think it was either later in high school or well into my college, can't remember. Uh, that's great. Uh, so what were your initial tastes? Like you said, you started programming with some small games. <clears throat> yes, so those just were just text-based. And uh, I had this book of, uh, that this book about uh, basing, basic language uh, programming that had a bunch of programs that were like you, you would type them out. They didn't come with any, any disk mm -hmm. or something you could yeah. put into the computer. Yeah. So you would type them out. And uh, the most expensive of them came with a floppy. Yes. That was, those were like really living it up. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but I found that interesting. There were a few games there. I tried to change them a bit, rec recreate things. I remember one of them was very early exposure where the game that was um, a car racing game. So it was text-based, uh -huh. but it was one character on the screen that was shaped like a car. Oh. I, th I thought, how is that possible? I mean, there's no character in the character set I'm used to that is shaped like a car, but clearly it managed to do something. So I looked at the source code and there were a few instructions that I couldn't understand. 
the most infamous basic peak and poke instructions. So that's basically reading and writing to uh, to physical memory addresses. Right. And I thought, okay, there's this poke instruction there with two arguments, two numbers, and somehow that creates a call. Mm-hmm. So I tried to change that and say, okay, I'll change the first number to see what happens. And then, well, there was no car on the screen, but nothing happened. So I tried incrementing that, that number a bit and then say, okay, I'll start with zero. Zero is fine. One, two, three. It did nothing. At four, it crashed a computer. I was too young at that time. I didn't know that I was actually rewriting the uh, intra vectors table. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then I gave up. Realizing that just changing that randomly wasn't wasn't getting me anywhere, yeah. but those were the early days. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember changing, uh, messing around with the vector table for, I think elevator implementation. Uh, it was it was a mess. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. That that gives us actually a very good insight into uh, what things were like. Of course, I'm talking as if this was like the 1920s, but in internet years, in computation years, it's it it is yes, it the is the 1920s and the 30s of the of the internet age. Um, that's that's great. And so later on, you continued programming. And then when you were a teenager, you happened upon Linus's work. What, uh, what? So what, what happened first is that, as I mentioned, I did mostly exclusive x86 assembly programming for 13 to 17. And at 17, I realized that it was a programming language called C, mm-hmm. which I didn't know about before. If I had, I would certainly have programmed in C, possibly with a bit of inline assembly, but not pure assembly because developing uh, application that have a graphical user interface and using the mouse and a keyboard in pure assembly, that's a bit painful. Yeah. <laughs> so I won't say I regret that because I think that four years of assembly is something that's really, really interesting. Um, I recall someone telling that... Uh, computer science students who've been exposed to basic programming uh, have their brain terminally damaged. <laughs> uh, I think assembly does the same thing in a different way. <laughs> and I've done both. So, uh, But then, yes, when I, when I started studying in university, uh, there were other people around who were interested in computer science and computer programming as well. And they had different background than me. And they told me, yeah, there's this language called C and there's this operating system called Linux. I wasn't- this was in high school? No, that was in uh, when I studied university at yes. seventeen. Okay, uh, I wasn't very interested in Linux to start with. I just tried out out of curiosity, uh, and back then I I was I was playing a bit with Windows. So my first exposure to Windows programming was uh, not very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Windows is mostly uh, is had a C API, mm-hmm. so trying to create Windows program in pure x86 assembly is, well, something you don't want to do. And I found that extremely boring. I mean, you wouldn't need to draw lines and circles and things on the screen. You wouldn't need to embed a font in your program. No, you had APIs and functions that you could call and that it would do everything for you. I mean, there's no fun in that. There's no fun. There's no fun in that, yeah. So I tried to find something funny to do, uh-huh. and I realized that it was very easy to crash Windows. Right. And especially to crash Windows machines that were connected on a network. Ah. So I started playing around with that a bit and finding a few exploits. And well, I started having access to Internet then and a bit before that to uh, uh, BBS. So I could find information quite easily mm. and source code and just try hacking around to see what was happening. Uh, and there was one particular exploit at some point. Um, 
for, if I remember correctly, it was for the ICQ messaging client, uh-huh. um, whether you could crash a remote, remote client. And it wasn't possible to trigger that from Windows back then because it required crafting um, an IP packet at the IP level and the Windows API were not very good for that. Oh, I see. So you had to corrupt a packet to yes. crash the remote. Yes. <clears throat> and so the exploit I found written in C was written for Linux mm-hmm. because in Linux it was very easy to craft your own IP packet and send that over network. Ah. So that's why I installed my first Linux distribution. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So it was not out of an academic curiosity for exploring Linux itself, but it was with another ulterior yes, motive of absolutely, absolutely. trying to crash ICQ. Yes. A noble motive, I should say. Completely, uh, completely. Yes. <laughs> no damage. No. I was just doing that to friends to, uh, to have fun. But no, that, is, that is basically how uh, you explore things. Uh, that's, yes. a, that's a very, uh, very important uh, insight. You, know? uh, you just start playing around the, with software that allows you to play around as much as you like. And you know, if you play around for long enough, you either come up with something that's pr- not present in the software that you want it to do. Uh, or you know you discover that something is broken and yes and you try to fix it. That's awesome. And this was uh, probably Linux's very very early stages. Was quite early. Uh, I don't remember the exact version, but I think it was a two dot zero kernel. Okay, so this was still this was still of course uh, Linux in its nascent stage. Yes. Uh, basically, there no protection for any uh, system call. Uh, there is no uh, not enough argument. Sanitization for any, you know, ioctals, uh, <laughs> and uh, I want to get into like you know your your first uh, interaction with Linux itself, but uh, also like you know just fast forwarding to today's time. To, so today you're you're responsible or you have been responsible in the past uh, for several sub projects in the Linux community. Uh, you know, you contributed heavily to V4L2. You have contributed in the DRM framework. You have contributed to the frame buffer device, FBDev, and you have contributed heavily to UVC. Uh, and, you know, these are for people who are not initiated about these. Uh, don't worry about them, but, you know, these are r- ridiculously important projects. Uh, as I said before, that drive a huge part of Linux's uh, success. Uh, of course, uh, to be fair, Laurent is not the only one. There, there are many other talented, really talented people working with him in the community on other fronts and this front as well. But uh, you know, just the amount of the amount of work that that Laurent has put in uh, and the quality of it is just tremendous. Uh, as a developer, uh, I really enjoy going through your code a lot of the times. So. I guess like one of the things is one of the things I struggle with is, you know, <laughs> I guess I'm a very simple minded person where I have to focus on one small thing, of, you know, of a small project. So begs the question, how do you how do you manage your time? You know, each of each one of these could be a legitimate full time job. And there are lots of corporate jobs that just uh, ex- expect expertise in any one of these and they would hire you. Um, and, uh, you know, how do you. How do you do you juggle between these projects or you know do you just focus on one at a time how do you manage time so first of all thank you for all the praise i still have a hard time believing that's true you know it's i think to some extent most of us in the least community suffer from the imposter syndrome and when you're in a room with lots of talented people especially in a country in a conference um 
it's it's hard for me to really believe that uh, my work is so important. But yes, in a way, I know that code I've written works. It's, it's run on lots of machine, and that lots of people, uh, lots of people use it. But back to your question, how do I manage my time? Well, pretty badly. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the first answer. <clears throat> it's true that there's lots of work to do on. So you mentioned the video Linux and DRM KMS subsystems. Uh, FB Dev is more or less dead nowadays, so that's a thing from the past. Uh, but yes, there's. But you know, sorry. To be fair, FB Dev has somehow trudged along, uh, although it's you know it's for the majority of things it's kind of dead. But you know, for example, a lot of Android phones, which is close to a billion phones now, an overwhelming majority of them do use the framework for. And uh, of course, that's uh, not to undermine the other uh, other frameworks, but you know somehow that has also trudged along, and uh, uh, you know, and then there is of course DRM and KMS, which I forgot to mention. But proceed, please. Yes. Uh, well, the FBDF subsystem itself is actually maintained. We have a maintainer in the kernel at the moment. Uh, but no new drivers are accepted. Right. Uh, and the API itself is indeed used by not just Android phones, but lots of machines, uh, but mostly through the uh, FBDF API compatibility layer that we have in DRM and KMS. So that's a bit of, uh, uh, bit of technical, uh, technical deep information. But um, back, uh, back to the original question, yes, that's definitely lots of work in all those, uh, all those areas. Um, I, I usually switch between them. I don't focus on one subsystem or one driver for a month and then move to something else uh, because there will always be people who uh, will contact me and tell me that uh, I, need, uh, <laughs> I need to focus on whatever part of the kernel they're interested in and ask me questions or remind me that uh, uh, there's work that's due for a certain deadline that's, uh, of course, just one day away every time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So, time management, yes, I mentioned badly because it's it's actually very difficult, and especially when you do Linux programming or Linux kernel programming uh, or any kind of uh, open source and free software project, I believe. Because the, the line, the boundary between your work and your hobby is very blurry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've developed a few drivers as hobby projects. Right. Uh, the most well-known one is the UVC video webcam driver. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still mostly a hobby project at the moment. I've had a few small contracts related to that. But when I'm maintaining the driver, reviewing patches, developing new patches, that's definitely hobby. Um, there are other tasks in the kernel uh, that are definitely paid work. Right. So just before we proceed into the UVC or, or any de- detail, I just want to highlight right? uh, one-liner for what UVC is, is it's basically a framework for adapting uh, your webcam or any uh, video streamable device uh, via the USB interface to a computer or, or any device, any, you know, it could also be Android or any other Linux machine. And where it basically hides the details of the specific hardware, uh, such as the camera or anything else. Uh, and it has been, as I said, tremendously useful. For example, there are so many companies just built around this. Uh, there's Lytra, there's uh, GoPro, a bunch of them, uh, just built around this idea, if not the specific work. But uh, 
Yeah, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Go on, please. Um, yeah, UVC itself stands for USB Video Class. So in itself, that's a protocol that's been standardized uh, to communicate between um, a video-related device, that's usually a webcam, uh, but could be something else, and a computer over USB. So that's what UVC is. Uh, and UVC Video is the name of the Linux kind of driver that supports uh, the UVC devices. So that's if you buy a webcam nowadays there's a very high chance, most certainly, that's going to be UVC device. So yes. You're going to use that driver. Um, that's, as I mentioned, that started as a, as a hobby project. That's actually what really got me into, uh, not specifically kernel programming, but got me into the Linux community itself. Um, I, I started doing Linux kernel development before that. Uh, started working on Google for Linux, actually, for a different piece of hardware. Back in the days when I was still using Windows as well, and I had this TV capture card that mm. was well, working on Windows because it was the main market, uh, and that had no Linux driver, or at least not a working Linux driver. Um, so when I was trying to transition to Linux... This was time, still around the 2.x current time frame. Uh, probably 2.2 at that time. So... I wanted to transition completely to Linux and I wanted to use that TV capture card in Linux. And so I decided to see if I could do something about that. I had no prior exposure to kernel programming, uh, but I knew there was a kernel that was written in C. At that time, I was already mostly fluent in C, so that didn't scare me. And I'm a hardware, I'm an electrical engineer. Um, so I'm totally fine hacking on electronics, so hacking on kernel, that's one level above, so mm -hmm. it's definitely not scary for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd rather crash my machine with uh, buggy software than uh, soldering iron. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. Uh, do you think that gave you an extra edge in terms of like you know some sort of fearlessness to go ahead and try and see if it breaks? It's okay if it breaks. That's the kind of. I think so, and I also believe that knowing how a computer works at the harder level is invaluable when you're a software developer. Even if you're way higher up the stack, if you do Java programming, for instance, so that you, uh, you have a virtual machine and lots of layers before you hit the hardware, knowing how CPU works, knowing that there's a cache, that there's registers, that your stack-based virtual machine actually maps real register-based hardware, at least in most cases, uh, that allows you to, um, well, it gives you a better view of the overall system, and I think it allows you to do, uh, to do a better job. Uh, I wanted to, to work with computers, and I decided to not to study computer science, but study electrical engineering for that reason. Mm -hmm. And partly because the university I wanted to study in wasn't really good at teaching computer science. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought that I would go on the other side uh, and teach myself, myself programming. Well, I had already started at nine, so that wasn't the scary part. For right. Me. From, from at this point in, in, your, in your background, we are basically... Hey, this kid was just playing around with some some TV capture device, and that did not have the driver implementation. You know, did you learn along the way, or did you feel confident and equipped? Did you ever feel code may not be of the appropriate quality, or did you ever feel anything of that sort before? Not not really, because that first project that was something I did for myself. I wanted to have support for that TV capture card. Um, 
I wasn't a huge believer in open source and free software at the time because I wasn't a believer in closer software either. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my mind, talking about the BBS days, the early internet connection days for me, I could download lots of software from the internet. I didn't care about the license. The code was available. I was using that. I posted code that I wrote without caring about the license either. Uh, it was quite natural to me for things to be open. Um, I guess that having an engineering background helps there as well because it's all about sharing information and having access to information. Uh, it's pretty much the, the idea between science in the modern world. Um, so I didn't really care about the code quality. I was doing something to make my hardware work for me. And I started working with uh, an existing driver that was supporting uh, capture cards were similar to one I had, but not identical. And it was uh, a developer who was maintaining a driver, at least actively developing it. And I started contacting him and, devel- and, and working with him. I never cared about whether my code was good enough or not, because I didn't think about upstreaming it at that time. I didn't even know it was such a thing as upstreaming. Um, and yes, eventually it started working and code got accepted at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that definitely wasn't my goal. I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, go into your personal preferences. What is your favorite editor? I use VI. Okay. And <laughs> so we know which religion you belong to. Then. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, so I'll try not to, not to make it a religion. I'm totally fine if people use other tools as long as I don't have to use them. Okay, fair enough. And yeah, why not, right? Uh, VI is present in basically every distribution yes. of uh, Linux, the lightweight version of it. Well, so I, what, I, I quite struggled in the beginning, actually. Oh, really? Uh, so as I mentioned, I studied programming on DOS and then Windows before switching to Linux. And so I started with a graphical user interface editor in Linux and something that wasn't really meant for yeah. uh, writing source code. Mm-hmm. And switching to VI, uh, it was a colleague of mine in a new project I had started showed me... Uh, it was actually a Windows version of VI called uh-huh. uh, GVIM. GVIM. And I really struggled in the beginning, but then thought it was quite interesting. And I assumed that if I had been exposed to Emacs the same way, I would be using Emacs today. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I ended up initially starting with VI uh, in my college computers because they were just uh, console, non, no X, no UI terminals. And I just happened to learn, I had the biggest problem with modal, the bimodal method in VI editing. So there's a edit mode and the command mode. And I always had a problem with doing things in the command mode because I would always mess things up and <laughs> end up deleting like a lot more than I, sh- I intended to. Uh, but, and of course, there, this was the era where, you know, you did not have a good source repo uh, yes. management. There's no Git back in the day. So you could not like revert back to your previous change. Um, so I would have like, you know, dot backup one, dot backup two all over the hard disk and mess up the whole thing. And eventually I would, it was a cluster. Mess. Very good practice. Yes. yes. <laughs> anyway, so then I eventually switched to, uh, even I went through this phase where I explored various other IDs. There was KDev at one point. It was just, now it's called KDevelop, I think. Yeah. I used that for some time as well. Right. And then there was, uh, there was all kinds of things that I jumped through, but I always consistently used uh, VI uh, for quicker edits and Emacs for bigger. Uh, when I'm writing a big program, I have to switch to Emacs. It's probably what my memory, uh, muscle memory yes. is fixed with. Okay, so what is your favorite uh, 
hack on VI or what is the favorite thing or what do you think is the most productive thing that you do on VI? Um, well, I'm pretty sure I don't even use one percent of what VI. Of course, nobody, me. nobody ever nobody does. does. Uh, and I'm really amazed when I see people using VI with lots of shortcuts and commands I don't know about. And so, in my day-to-day work, uh, not that much. But from time to time, when you have to do things like, for instance, you going through a log file and you want to. Um, to revert the order of the line, so from the the end to the beginning, uh, things like that are very to do, very easy to do in VI. Uh, most of the time, I have to look at my notes because that's right. something I do daily. Uh, but there, are, um, there, there's lots of power behind uh, the command system VI that right. l- lets you do things like that. Um, I like how you can in uh, in command mode, especially the search and replace system, is uh, based on regular expressions. is uh, is very useful right. in the sense that you can include functions in the uh, in the output, um, and that's one of the few tricks I like about uh, about the editor. Awesome. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so one of my favorite tricks on VI is just simply uh, record a macro. I mean, it is available in most other editors yes. as well, but uh, VI is simpler is probably the simplest way to record your macros and repeat them uh, and kind of works more reliably I must say although I use Emacs as I said before extensively but I think VI's micro record works more reliably than any other okay what's your favorite shell uh, I'm not sure I have a favorite one I use bash okay but that's because it links distributions I've been using shipped with bash and I haven't really explored other shells. I mean, bash likes shells, yes, uh, especially on embedded systems. When when you have a simpler version, the uh, uh, I use the basic box Ash shell in uh, most of my embedded boards. Um, but I'm I wouldn't say it's my favorite. It's pretty much the only one I know. Okay, fair enough. Any specific trick that you use that you end up using more often than in bash? Not too much. I mean, one thing I like is the ability to uh, recall the previous commands and search for that uh, based on a search string. Uh, so that's that's quite handy. Right. Uh, it saves a bit a uh, bit of typing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I'm sure there's uh, I use less than a percent of what Bash could offer right. me. No question about it. No one person ever uses anything more than I mean, one person is pretty being pretty generous. Uh, I I think my favorite trick, if I had to pick one, is. Uh, yeah, something related to the recall the last command. And also, uh, I'm going to mess it up while describing it, but basically, let's say if you had a typo uh, while, while for the command, let's say if you wanted to say ls slash user slash bin, uh, but you know you mistyped and said lw. Now, uh, instead of uh, just being slash user slash bin, if it was like a long path, let's say, and you don't want to retype everything, uh, so you just want to replace the ls in lw. So you have hit enter and this like, oh, no such command uh, directory called lw. And now you use caret lw and caret ls. That just replaces lw with ls. That's my favorite. And somehow it's just dumb luck. I stumbled into this some time back and that's been my favorite to use. All right. So I'm pretty sure the, I know the answer to this. Favorite source Repo management system? Yes, you do know the answer. That's good. Okay. I've used several <laughs> over, over over the years, started with CVS, SVN, a bit of Mercurial, and Git nowadays. Awesome. Any any trick, any power trick that you have there? Uh, 
I'm not sure we call them poet tricks because I'm sure they know it by most people, but the first time I learned about Git Rebase minus I, uh, that was a mind-blowing moment. Yes. Uh, gives you po- the power of rewriting your history is something <laughs> that's very interesting, but yes. have to be used with uh, uh, lots of care. Yes. Uh, I remember a talk that was given by Linus Torvald about using Git, and he gave a few, few shortcuts that were interesting. Add minus P is also uh-huh. a very interesting one. Yep. Uh, so those are, the, those are the two I learned that I found really, really nice. So, yeah, it's also very interesting when you do an interactive rebase. Uh, you have the option, there's a minus X option that allows you to insert a shell command between every rebase step. Mm-hmm. So if you want, if you have a patch series of 20 patches and you want to make sure that every step compiles, then you can do git rebase minus i, insert a make command at every step, and you'll just let it go. And if make fails, it's going to stop the rebase, and then you can uh, you can react to that. So this Beautiful. is quite useful. The, I guess like every engineer I ever know, when they come across like rebase i and uh, add dash p has had a mind-blown experience. Hopefully, uh, people who have not come across, uh, I'm jealous of you because you'll go through an awesome experience the first time. Uh, yes, there's there's no question that has to be one of the most useful things out there. What does your setup look like? What is your favorite development uh, machine? And uh, what are the peripherals you like, like keyboard and mouse? Do you have any preference? What does it look like? So it's very simple. I mostly do work on my laptop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a desktop machine at home, but that's just sitting in the corner and it's used as a, uh, well, nowadays mostly as a build farm server mm-hmm. or, or board farm server. Um, but yeah, I I do most of my work on my laptop, if not all my work, um, which makes it very handy in a way because you don't have to transfer files between multiple machines and have to care about accessing files in multiple machines. Uh, but it also, uh, it's not very scalable, obviously. The day I need to access my files from another location, I'm a, I'm a bit stuck. Um, and yes, at home, it's uh, connected to external screens. Having two screens is quite, is quite useful. Uh, what laptop do you use? It's, uh, uh, it's an uh, Intel i5-based uh, machine, and it's, uh, it's, it's a Dell, uh, Dell Latitude that's now nearly five years old, actually. I need to get a new one. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, i5 is, it still works pretty reasonably. Um, yes, it and, does. Yeah. Um, I think that the day I switch from uh, uh, regular to a hard disk to an SSD drive, uh, I realized that the, the CPU power wasn't that relevant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, you soon realize that bottleneck is elsewhere yes. than upgrading your CPUs to the next latest generation. Right, makes perfect sense. Any, uh, are you a mechanical keyboard type of a guy? Are you QWERTY? I use a Belgian Azerty keyboard. Okay. Uh, so when friends coming uh, coming at home, I, I moved to Finland three years ago, and Finns use a QWERTY keyboard. So when I have friends coming to my place and they have to use my computer, they always curse me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay, um, that's awesome. And if there was a dream machine or dream setup that you would have to pick, uh, what would it be? And uh, if you don't have to just stick to the machine, like, you know, what would the ideal atmosphere to work uh, at your best look like? Uh, um, well, starting from the machine, I wish I could have a laptop with a 4 by 3 aspect ratio screen. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's unfortunately very difficult to get nowadays. I'm not sure if it's even possible. Right. Thanks to the movie industry, because <laughs> all you do with a laptop, obviously, is watch movies. Watch movies. Yeah. Yes. Sixteen or sixteen by nine now. Yeah. Everything. Well, that's a bit painful. I like to have a high DPS screen. I want to have a machine that has a good battery life because I travel a lot. Um, and going to conferences, it's really annoying if you have to recharge your laptop for two hours. But I'm not very picky. Uh, it can look a bit bulky as long as it's uh, as long as the usability is good. Uh, around that, I mentioned having external screens, but there again, I'm not extremely picky. Uh, I've actually been trying, but that's mostly for testing embedded hardware that have uh, 4K output capabilities. I've been trying to find a 4K TV that's not a smart TV, mm. uh, which is kind of mission impossible because, nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, they have uh, to put it in the... Yes. Or at least have a smart TV vendor that doesn't just offer firmware upgrades, that, but that would offer firmware removal. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> but no, jokes aside, um, having... Uh, well, your desk is never big enough when you start doing embedded development because there's boards all around. Right. Um, so having some... Uh, Desk real estate is quite quite important for me. I try to keep that organized, but I'm pretty sure I do a really bad job at that. <laughs> a quiet environment. I especially when you need to concentrate on something, you you need to uh, uh, to be in a quiet place, and you don't you don't want to be disturbed. So do you listen to music or or no? I sometimes do, but when I really have to concentrate trait on code, I find that it just disturbs me. So I then, then I want silence. Uh, but the other way around, from time to time, as I mentioned, I work from home, so it uh, can be a bit lonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from time to time, I spend half a day working from a cafe in, uh, in the city, mm-hmm. um, mostly replying to uh, emails that have been sitting in my inbox for, <laughs> for way too long. Uh, so anything that doesn't require being really, uh, really focused or concentrating and I like having people around as well. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, switching gears a bit, just so what is what do you think is the future of you know, open source communities? You know, it's just exploded in the recent times. We have the open source summit just purely dedicated for open source uh, software. Earlier, it used to be uh, open source used to almost be synonymous with Linux as the most famous you know poster child for open source software. So what do you think is the future going forward for open source? Oh, it's obviously really hard to tell. I can't predict the future. What I believe will happen is that open source and free software won't go away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty certain of that. You know, GitHub has an explosion of uh, free software, which is great. But a lot of, uh, sometimes I have to say like, you know, I'm not proud of, a lot of my own repositories, uh, but although it's it's out there for anybody to look at it, and you know the good thing is if they're really interested, they can build on it, they can change it, they can fix bugs. But the other side effect of it is lots of crappy software uh, is available. So how do you distinguish? Uh, one of the things that I uh, read recently was like you know how do you distinguish good from bad open source software? You know, just because there's so many of them. Well, we make it sound like bad software is a consequence of open source. Well, if you look at closed source and proprietary software, uh, I wouldn't say that they're all good. <laughs> <laughs> the big difference is that you can't fix them yourself. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, there's lots of bad software out there. I mean, what, one thing you can do is that 
you can probably have a bit more confidence on something shipped by distribution compared to something that's available on a random GitHub repository. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think that bad software is such a big issue in, a big issue in itself. When you start programming, you certainly don't do a perfect job. Or if you do, then I want to hire you. <laughs> <laughs> and sharing sharing the source code and getting peer review is an amazing way to improve your skills. Um, we talked before about the fact that it should be taken personally, and that's about the quality of the code, and that's about the quality of the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe that's largely true. Um, but I'm a, I'm a big believer in uh, in free software today, uh, not just open source, but free, free software. That's why I'm a believer in the GPL GPL license and prefer that over the BSD license in uh, in most cases, um, because it's not just about the availability of the source code, but about the about the freedom of the, of the software itself. We could talk about that for for a day easily, so I'm going too much into too much details in in that area. But I believe that, yes, free, free software, open source software will definitely continue. Uh, Linux will uh, as well. Will we still be using Linux 50 years from now? I have no idea. It could be something completely different. Uh, and even if, I'm, if I've invested m- most of my career today in Linux, I wouldn't be sad if it disappeared and was replaced by something better. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as the freedom is kept, I'm totally fine with that. Um, so no, I won't try to predict what's going to happen to the software I use today and the software I care for, but as long as the liberties stay around, then I'll be happy. What is your, uh, advice for starting with open source contribution? Where do you recommend that they go and start with, or what is, what should be their approach, especially for people who are, who might be working daytime jobs, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I, I already do this during daytime. There's still a lot to help. Uh, in the community where we can use their expertise. That's right. Um, I wouldn't even limit that to people who have a computer-related daytime job. Uh, as I mentioned, my father is a lawyer, and he's the one who got me into programming because he did that himself. Um, computers are ubiquitous in this world. Everybody uses them. And I, I think it would be really a shame if only people who have studied computer programming, uh, computer science, uh, were the ones allowed to program. Uh, but that being said, I um, my best advice is to start by scratching your own itch. And there's nothing very or- original there. But that's how I started. I had this uh, TV capture card that wasn't supported, and I decided to uh, to try to fix that. Uh, that's the same way I started with the UVC driver. I had a webcam that wasn't supported and I wanted to fix that. So there's lots of stories like that. If you approach open source and especially Linux kernel development by saying, I want to do Linux kernel development, uh, so I need to find a task that's, uh, that I can work on and complete, I think that's not the best approach because you will most likely get a task that well, won't interest you. Hmm. Uh, that's... Uh, not saying it's an, int- an interesting to anyone. Uh, there's lots of areas in the kernel, and people have various interests and preferences. But you need to find what you're interested in. Mm. Um, so, as as a hardware engineer and someone who's into writing kernel drivers, 
then finding a piece of hardware that you use and that isn't well supported is a very good way. Um, because not only do you do you start with kind of development, but you also achieve something. Mm-hmm. Um, other work that's not just related to computers is also interesting. I've done quite a bit of uh, robotics development. Nice. Uh, and what's really nice in there is that the end result is something tangible that you can see and touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially for, for students, uh, when you want to get students to programming, that's, uh, that's very, very useful. Uh, I mean, try to impress someone by a Hello World program. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> or, or blinking an LED. Uh, we've all been through that, but it's not very impressive and not something that gives you, most of the time at least, a big feeling of achievement. So, yes, start by doing something that you care about and something about try to address a problem you have. All right. So I want to uh, switch gears a bit. And, you know, you, you just mentioned that, you know, start small. But, you know, people who have already started small and they're, they've moved a bit further along. Uh, and, you know, if we have to use, let's say, a system for attacking slightly larger problems, and uh, many of which you have dealt with in your past, what is your... Uh, system of framework, or if, if any, how do you approach a big problem? Like you know, what is your mental model? Do you use any uh, you know any known mental models or something that works for you? Can you throw some light on how do you approach a big complex problem? So first of all, I wouldn't really say start small. What I said is start with something that's personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be something small indeed. Right. Um, and start with something that will give you results without having to work for five years on it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can be part of a big project. Uh, when I started trying to get that TV capture card working, uh, that wasn't an easy task. It wasn't something small, but I had a code base to, uh, to work on. I had an existing driver. Uh, and I ended up spending six months of development just to get it working. So it wasn't that easy. Um, but something when you can make well, either achieve uh, a goal in a short, a relatively short amount of time, or something when you can see progress along the way. Uh, I think there's nothing worse and more demotivating than working for weeks, a month, and not seeing any progress in what you do. So that being said, for biggest problems, because yes, we, we do have to tackle them as well, um, I kind of try to follow the same approach. If I have to write a new, very complex driver for, for a very complex piece of hardware, I will try to start small first to exercise just the basic features to get something working. I will try to, to make sure that I can communicate with the, with the device as a first step and just loading the driver and see that communication works. And then step by step, um, enhance that and add more features. That being said, obviously, if you don't plan ahead, well, you can find yourself uh, in a corner where there's no way forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get to the point where implementing the, the next feature in your project will not really be bu- be possible because of the architecture decision you've taken before, because you haven't even thought about the architecture. Um, but on the other hand, trying to plan everything ahead really doesn't work. Uh, if you think about the Linux kernel, if we had, if it 
if it had been designed from scratch by anyone saying, I want to write an operating system and I'm going to design the architecture first before writing a single line of code, we wouldn't have Linux today. Mm-hmm. That simply wouldn't exist. Um, so my advice there would be to keep a balance between the two. Um, and it's, uh, it's also a bit hard to give uh, real concrete advice in that area because when, when you've done lots of programming and especially on bigger projects, at some point there are decisions you take that are not really conscious decisions. You feel that mm. the best direction is in one way or another. You can certainly make mistakes. Uh, I'm not saying that my good feelings are always right. But it's the same way as when you, you, learn, you learn to drive a car. You don't have all the, uh, all the automation built in your muscles yet. And so if someone teaches you to drive, it's actually very difficult. Because when my father started teaching me to drive, he told me, well, just press on the clutch and do this and do that, and the cars will just start moving. And, well, no, it didn't. Uh, and he had a really hard time explaining what he did daily. Uh, and I believe that's uh, to some extent the same. The same applies to programming or anything else. When you have uh, when you have lots of experience or when you have invested lots of time in something, there's lots that just feel natural, and you don't really know why you go in one direction or another. So it's always important as well when you uh, when you start gaining experience and start trusting your good feelings. Uh, to always reconsider them and say, okay, is this really good? Uh, could there be uh, another better way to do that? It's a really good analogy. You get better at it the more you do it and yes. you, you form your own ways of doing things. Um, but there's a risk, of course, of forming your own mistakes as well that you keep <laughs> repeating. Yes. So that's why you have to always be careful and reconsider uh, anything that's, that you have the habit of doing. Going back to the question of big, complex, challenging project. So do you use any uh, any known tools or methodologies to design or lay out the whole mental model onto a paper or do you just start, uh, do you feel comfortable translating it to code first and then uh, work things out? So I don't really use any, any known tool. I'm sure I use some of the known methodologies, but without knowing them. <laughs> um, I certainly wouldn't say that I have my unique way of, uh, of solving problems. Um, I try to draw things on paper, yes. I find it helps. Uh, it also helps explaining to someone else what you're trying to do mm-hmm. uh, because it really highlights the, the corner cases and you realize that things that you can't really explain well are things that you don't understand well. Uh, so, so who's your favorite uh, buddy to discuss or explain this with? Uh, I have a few of them. Um, <laughs> It can be a bit of a caricature to say that it doesn't matter who you talk to and that you could even explain that to a potted plant in the corner of the room, but that's not completely true. Um, so I usually talk with a few kind of developers who I work with uh, daily or at least quite regularly, uh, and they do the same. It is close to this rubber duck uh, methodology, or one of the known ways is you explain it to a rubber duck, assuming that's yes. a person. And then things become clearer. They're like, oh, I did not think about this or what about that and so on. Yeah, there's also the fact I believe that if you feel that something is wrong wrong in what you're doing in the architecture or 
if you have a good feeling that no, this this doesn't look right, most of the time there's indeed going to be something wrong. Uh, the other way around is not completely true. If you have a good feeling that yes, that's the way, you can definitely make mistakes. Mm -hmm. But when you think that this is not really clean enough, there could be, there should be a better way. Uh, usually, that's the case. Okay. So going back to you mentioned you just gotten into or recently uh, done some bit of robotics programming. Yes. What is it? Can you share any, any details? About sure, absolutely. So I started working on robotics projects just a few years after finishing my, uh, my degree. Um, so that was definitely a hobby project at the time. Uh, the university I studied in at that time decided to start participating in an international robotics contest. Mm. It was a Belgian version first, and if you qualified, then it was a, a European-level finals contest. The idea was to design and build a completely autonomous robot. Uh, that would complete a set of predetermined tasks on a play field that was about two by three meters. So the play field was known. There were obstacles, there were objects, there were well, different types of tasks that you need to complete to get points. And you would compete against another robot. You were not allowed to interact physically with, the, with your own robot while it was uh, running, so it has to be completely autonomous uh, from the, the beginning of the game. And uh, robots were also not allowed to touch each other, so it wasn't a violent fight. It was about trying to uh, to avoid the opponent and, and complete as many tasks as possible to get points. Um, so you start with something simple, and gradually, year after year, you try to add more intelligence or artificial intelligence to your robot. Uh, and it was a very interesting project because, because robotics is a mix of mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and computer engineering. Right. So it's uh, it's really a multi-field project. So you can't do that by yourself. Uh, well, well, maybe to some extent, but it's it's quite difficult to master all yeah. those three fields. Um, and as I uh, already mentioned, it's something that's very tangible. Mm -hmm. uh, you can touch a robot. You, you can see what it's doing. When when there's a bug in there, it definitely shows in right. ways that can be quite dangerous, actually. Um, so the, I, I worked on that for about 10 years. Uh, started building robots myself with a few friends of mine. And gradually over the years, started uh, teaching university students about that. Wasn't uh, I wasn't a paid teacher. It was just... Uh, uh, evening uh, non-mandatory classes for them, but there were quite a lot of students who were really interested. Um, so that was a really, uh, really interesting experience. And that's probably what, in a way, got me uh, where I am today, because I started developing the UVC driver for for robotics project. We wanted to put a webcam on the robot. Uh, and one thing after the other, I now do full-time kernel development. Uh, so that's, awesome. Yes. And now you do uh, consulting with your own company? That's correct, yes. So I have uh, a small one-person, well, soon-to-be two-person company uh, called IDs on Board. Uh, and I do contracting for various type of customers, mostly doing Linux kernel driver development, uh, but also other kind of lower level use based software when that's needed. Um, I'm mostly focused on multimedia development, video for Linux, DRM, KMS, so mm -hmm. camera capture and, and display. Mm -hmm. um, those are my two, two biggest areas of expertise. I see. 
And uh, where, where is there a website to find Ideas on Board? Uh, for people? Ideas on Board.com. Okay. So it's pretty simple. And on the website, you'll just find a big logo and an email address. Perfect. Because there's always too much work to be done. So I haven't really invested too much in the website. Okay. And that would be the official way of people trying to get in touch with the company? For the yeah, concert. by email. That's the best. Yes. Okay. And you can easily find my email address in the English kernel as well. Yeah. That's probably the best way of advertising for a kernel developer. Right. Yes. Always just look at the Git log. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, and uh, do you have any social media presence that you want to put out there for people? Uh, not much. I got a LinkedIn profile, but I don't use it that much. Uh, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on well, any mainstream or non-mainstream social media. So contact me through email, through IC, run into me at a conference. Those are the best ways. And uh, do you have any uh, any other upcoming interesting things that you want to announce to people or uh, anything that you want to share here with us? I'm not sure I believe in big announcements in the oh and one more thing way. <laughs> um, because I think that Linux development is a gradual and iterative process. So yes, I tried to uh, look ahead a bit, but I definitely don't have a 10 years uh, plan. Um, so I'd like to get back into robotics at some point. Uh, haven't managed to find a time to do that. What I'm toying with at the moment is um, board farms and test-related setups because it's uh, uh, it's increasingly clear in the kind of community that testing is invaluable and that is no way that we can't achieve, especially with the growing rate of the kernel, uh, stable software if we don't invest in testing as well. So that's one of my pet projects at the moment, uh, trying to make it as easy as possible by doing a bit of hardware development, uh, as easy as possible to uh, to build and deploy a board farm. Um, and that's something that I hope to announce maybe in the, hopefully by the end of the year, uh, just a, a side personal project that's not just related to the kernel, but that will, uh, of course, be used for that. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to uh, seeing that. Hey, listen, Lauren, it has, been, it has been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Voidstar podcast series. And I have one small request. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast sourcer or head on over to the Voidstar podcast website, which is www.voidstarpodcast.com or www.mycpu.org for more audio and articles. Thank you. Until next time. Bye-bye.